0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're very pleased to have Michaela Honica on the show, and we'll be talking about her new book, Know Your Enemy, American Debate on Nazism, 1933-19. to 19- <music> Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, we're very pleased to have Michaela Honica on the show, and we'll be talking about her new book, Know Your Enemy, American Debate on Nazism, 1933 to 1945. Most Americans know something about World War II. They know we fought the Germans and the Japanese, and most Americans, I think, probably have the impression that we, in the German case, thought the Nazis were very bad actors, and that, having realized this, we went across the pond to save the Germans from Hitler and his crew. Anyone who believes this should read this book because it is a mistaken impression. It turns out that there were lots of Americans uh, in Germany who did realize that the Nazis were, in fact, bad actors from the uh, beginning, and they informed Roosevelt uh, about it. But many of them also argued, as I think many historians do today, that there was very widespread German support for the Nazis that there was something of a kinship between something in the German soul and hitler you don 't want to take this kind of thing too far, but it 's fascinating to read about what Americans said about the Nazis from thirty three to the beginning of the war and then, after the war, there are also some very interesting things that Michaela has to say about the American reception of the news about the Holocaust and also post war plans concerning the disposition of Germany. There are lots of myths that are busted in Know Your Enemy. I should also add that the book is wonderfully written. Why is it so often the case that people that are not native English speakers write such beautiful English prose? This book is written in a very crisp style that I think should be widely emulated, and Cambridge University Press should be congratulated for publishing it. Uh, as you can see, I enjoyed the book, and I enjoyed talking to Michaela today. I hope that you enjoy the interview. Here it is. Hi, Michaela. Hi, Marshall. How are you today?
1: I'm fine. How are you?
0: I'm, I'm very well. Uh, Michaela, you're right down the hall from me, aren't you? I am. So if I were to ask you about the weather, that would we're be... We're
1: looking at the same weather, we're right? We're looking at Inside. the same
0: weather, yeah. So those of you uh, who listen to this program a lot know that we follow the uh, weather in Iowa, Very closely, and I believe Michaela will agree with me that today is a very beautiful day. Yeah,
1: yeah, blue sky and sun, and one couldn't ask
0: for more. No, very crisp, very wonderful. I should tell our listeners that we have um, Michaela Honka on the show today, and uh, we'll be talking about um, her new book, uh, Know Your Enemy, American Debate on Nazism, 1933 to 1945. It's uh, just come out. We debated this a little bit. We think that it has just come out from Cambridge University Press. I have uh, read the book, and uh, I think it's absolutely terrific. I I hope that it is widely read. I I really do because it's one of these books that clears up a lot of uh, misconceptions about uh, what what Americans thought about Nazism um, before the war, after 33, and then uh, all the way up to the point at which they were debating uh, what the heck to do about uh, the Nazis in Germany uh, after the war. And and, and I, I really think anybody who is interested in um, World War II or Nazism or Franklin Roosevelt or any of these characters should give the book a close read. And so it was, was my great pleasure to to read it. Um, Michaela, why don't you um, begin by telling us just a little bit about yourself. I always use this word in the uh, interviews and people don't understand it. Give us your Lebenslauf.
2: Okay,
1: <laughs> I can do that. I do understand that yeah. word.
2: <laughs> well,
1: Marshall, I think that you know, our listeners should also know that this is the morning after Thanksgiving, and I think that that shows your real dedication to scholarship <laughs> when we're having this interview uh, on this day. Well, I really very much appreciate that. Um, well, about myself, I'm um, an assistant professor uh, at the University of Iowa in the History Department, where I teach um the history of American foreign relations and transatlantic relations, and um, I had, uh, I guess, a variety of teaching positions and other positions before I came here um, almost two years ago now. I, I started um, really teaching history at the Kennedy Institute uh, at the Free University in Berlin where I taught also mainly American history, and then after that I worked for um the German Council on Foreign Relations, which is a Berlin-based foreign policy, uh, think tank. And then I moved back to the United States, where earlier I had done my graduate, uh, training in, uh, at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. So I moved back to my alma mater as a DAD professor. That's, uh, the abbreviation for the German Academic Exchange Service. And, uh, in Chapel Hill in North Carolina, I taught again um, mainly German history, actually German history, European transatlantic relations, and then from there I moved to to Canada and at York University in Toronto I taught um, American foreign policy again. So I think of my of my previous um, teaching positions as having this pattern that I either teach prior to Iowa, at least I teach. Um, American history, foreign policy in particular, to non-Americans. And I teach German history and European history to non-Germans. But pattern really only dissolved when I, when I came here in Iowa.
0: I was going to say, let me ask you how you became interested in uh, America.
1: Well, um, I think that's sort of, a, in my case, that's a, that's a family um, uh, inheritance, especially on the side of my uh, of my father, so I you know we are i'm i was born in germany i was grew up in germany um and my father really um has a lifelong fascination and i think admiration with this country um he worked for general Motors, so my family lived in detroit uh at times first when I was a child really? and then uh, yeah, in the, in the mid '80s, my family, without me, moved back uh, and, and and lived just outside Detroit for for two years. And then when they moved back to Germany, I actually began my my graduate studies in uh, in North Carolina. And I think that even though there's you know this generational difference obviously between my father and me, that for both of us, um, the United States has been sort of the land of opportunity. Um, not necessarily in a material sense, although it worked out career-wise, I think, for both of Mm -hmm. us, Um, but with regard to identity issues, um, you know, I, uh, in particular, when I was young, I really felt a strong urge to escape my German identity, and I first tried that by, um, when I was done with high school in Germany, I moved to, to Paris, I began my university studies in uh, in Paris and I sort of wanted to become French and I think that I made some some headway and some success. I, I, I spoke French very well. I had a really nice provision accent and then you know one day I was watching Casablanca with my, with my French friends and in the discussion after the film which I had seen so many times like you know all of us and I always identified with you know Bogart as well as uh, Ingrid Berkman. And the discussion with my Provision friends afterwards, I realized that I couldn't, I couldn't really play on the other side. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I had to be the German, uh, in this discussion. I'm mean, the terrorist. I had to be the German. I couldn't like switch over, you know, and become <laughs> one of the, one of the allies. And I always found, uh, the United States and, you know, my American colleagues and friends much more accommodating. You know, I think you can be whoever you want to be, um, and whichever way you want to sort of, um, shape your identity here. So in that in, in that sense, it, I think it was both for my father and Nia, Um the you know the land of opportunity.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I know a lot of uh, Germans in the United States, and they seem to assimilate very very well. I know a lot yeah. of Russians in the United States, and. Oftentimes they don't assimilate as well. I, I don't know exactly why that is. And I, I spent some time in Germany, and I found it a, a kind of a strange place, uh, to be honest with you, but also yes. a familiar place at, 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 in, a, in another way. Uh, yeah. So so I, I, I sort of understand. And I've had a lifelong fascination with, with Germany myself, even though I'm a Russian historian. And I, I was very happy to be able to go over there and spend some time thanks to the – Deutsche Akademische Austauschdienst. Mm-hmm. Give them a plug. Those people are very good. I always tell my yeah. undergraduates, if you want to learn a language and you want to learn it for free, you should try German because they'll pay you to learn German. <laughs> I'm,
1: I'm, I'm glad to hear that because, yeah, I think, you know, they're very committed and they oh, deserve yeah. to get some advertisements. Oh, yes. no,
0: they totally do. They they, they paid for me to have a trip over there, and any undergraduate or graduate student that wants to go and learn German, they, they basically will pay you a stipend to go do it. So yeah. It's, it's an absolutely terrific <laughs> organization. So how, how did you come to write? this book about american perceptions uh, of the nazis from from 33 to 45.
1: well you know that also has to do obviously with my background but but goes back i think even further i think that um like many germans of my of my generation i had as a teenager I had quite a a preoccupation with uh, with the third reich so in in high school, I would write papers on um sort of the collapse of the weimar republic you know the the years leading up to the to the nightmare years the sort of sense of impending doom um or on on you know exile authors and artists and immigrants later um I was really interested in the German resistance so I think that i always appra- i mean i had this obsession with the third Reich but i um often pursued it sort of from the from the periphery. But I think that as a child um I was already quite aware that sort of at the center of the history of my country was this was this place of uh, of this place of horror and that I couldn't really but I had to keep looking at it, you know, that I couldn't really turn away from it. And then uh coming to this country <clears throat> as a graduate student I think in some ways you could describe this book, which is based on my dissertation, as another attempt to approach the and explore the third reich from the periphery, right? From the outside. This time sort of me looking at the Americans, looking at um the Nazis. So in, in in some ways it's a it's a continuation of really a a longstanding um a long standing preoccupation. I think also um when I applied for um a fellowship, a Fulbright fellowship to come to study in this country. Um, I really wanted to study in Chapel Hill and I made a case for wanting to do something about southern history because I thought that way, you know, they would make sure that they sent me to North Carolina, which is really where I wanted to go. Right. But actually I wanted to work with um, you know, this man whom I didn't know personally at the time, um, who became my mentor, Gerhard Weinberg. And I think that in many ways, I mean my I think that my two Big mentors Gerhard Weinberg and Michael Hunt also really sort of shaped the outline of this project. In the end, you know, Gerhard um, is one of the really the leading authority on World War II and Nazi foreign policy and other aspects of the Third Reich. And his um, he and his immediate family escaped Nazi Germany in uh, in '38 as mm-hmm. uh, as German Jews. Mm-hmm. And um, sometimes I think I can't even like fully vast, big extent of the impact that this man had had on me. But then on the other hand, you know, the second teacher, Michael Hunt, who's really the model historian in my field of American foreign policy. So I think the the Nazi German aspect and the foreign policy aspect, you know, was was represented um, in, you know, with these teachers, and that really guided me also.
0: And and what had been written about American perceptions of the Nazis between 33 and 45 um, before you wrote this book?
1: I think it was all um very fragmented in only looking at um specific aspects of the topic. I think that if you look at the sort of at the entire historiography what really predominates is um the Holocaust and how it was misunderstood or not understood and sort of the American response to the Holocaust. I think especially from the nineteen eighties on that um um, that becomes, um, that becomes a sort of a dominant theme in the, in the American historiography. And, um, I, I mean, I, I'm deeply in, you know, in, indebted to that literature, but reading it, it always seemed to me that there was part of the story missing, you know, because these people looked at, you know, who knew what, um, in the United States, at what at what time, and what were the reasons why they responded or did not respond in this way? And I thought, well, clearly there is a larger, right, both governmental and, but especially public debate uh, going on, and that story really needs to be needs to be told. Maybe prior to the 80s and 90s, with you know an emphasis sort of on the American response to the uh, to the Holocaust, the literature was dominated by. Um, Um, you know, post-war plans. So, you know, were, Mm -hmm. uh, were the, were the Germans treated fairly in the, you know, the American wartime debate? And, um, did the American government have a coherent and constructive plan, you know, for what to do with Germany after the war? Um, and again, I'm very indebted to that literature, but it seemed to me that part of that was, I mean, there was also something missing there. Um, some of that literature really, um, like hardly acknowledges the war and what the Germans did in the war, and sort of starts with 45 and post 45, and centers on all the mistakes that the Americans made, <laughs> you know, before they <laughs> got something wrong, and I thought, no, wait a minute, there's a really important prehistory too, um, you know, to these developments.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and it's a it's a it's a fascinating prehistory too. Uh, let, let's. Talk a little bit about the first section of the book, which was a huge surprise to me, and I bet a surprise to everyone else. Um, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt spent some time in Germany. I, d- I did not know this, yeah, and you begin yeah. by talking about his his understanding of Germany even before thirty-three. So yeah, go ahead and talk a little bit about him.
1: Yeah, so he, um, I think he was quite representative, sort of, of his class and his time, uh, in that you know his parents uh, would just regularly. You know, on an annual basis, take these trips to Europe. And then the father had a, a preference for some spas, uh, but Nauheim in Germany. So, you know, Roosevelt spent several, you know, the, the summers over the course of several years, uh, in Germany, had German friends. Uh, there are letters that he writes back home as a child to his cousins, you know, talking about his adventures in, uh, in Germany. And then he is put uh into school there I think in the end probably only for one for one summer you know for a couple of weeks uh mainly mainly possibly um reconnects with uh with some of those friends that he makes there in the following summer, but later as a wartime president, he claims that you know he went to school in Germany for an extended time and sort of he traces the the militarization of Germany over the course of several years where he went to school there. And, um, that's, uh, he remembers that part wrongly. I think, you know,
2: yeah.
1: uh, having looked at the papers in, in, in Hyde Park, you know, there is only, there is only, and also the diary of his of his of his mother. There is only evidence for, for one summer really, but so he had some, some direct, um, and personal experience, but, um, and he makes use of that, um, uh, when he wants to argue against some of his sort of key advisors, especially especially Hull during the wartime debate. Um, but um, I argue that um, these these childhood memories um, really get uh, get filled um, more substantially with his experience um uh in, uh, of being part of the Wilson cabinet in mm-hmm. uh, in World War One, you know, mm-hmm. I think that the World War One experience was formative, really, for his generation, you mm-hmm. know, uh, and and thereby for many other of his uh, of his cabinet members, you know, during uh, during World War Two. Mm-hmm. And how I how was it?
0: Is, I'm sorry, how was it formative?
1: Um, well, I think this is where uh, this is where Germany really emerges as uh, as the enemy, and where this uh, particular uh, understanding that, you know, Germany is a, um, is a militaristic or inherently aggressive nation, um, emerges. I think that emerges for the first time in, uh, in World War One. Sort of a, a uh, mm-hmm. images, mm-hmm. an essentialized, uh, enemy image, An essentialized enemy image. And I think for some people that survives or is, is revived, you know, in, in World War Two. I think what's important about, about Roosevelt, um, specifically is that both during the war um and then afterwards in the in the historical literature he is accused of having this essentialized understanding of Germany, right? That this enemy image that he basically forms in World War One just uh continues for him and that he can says, you know, George F. Kennan says about uh about Wiesel. he never really understood the difference between uh the German Empire, Imperial Villermont, Germany, mm-hmm. uh, of World War One, and then Nazi Germany, and um, I would argue that that's not true. He understood the difference uh, very well. I think that Roosevelt's mind worked in such a way that, um, you know, it was he looked at things as if they were sort of a stamp collection. Like everything was two-dimensional, and he could put it, you know, one thing next to another. Um, so I don't think he developed uh, a coherent theory of the German national character uh and he was very open to to new information and he was very well uh you know he had access to many sources but 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 also really kept an open mind starting in thirty three uh he was well supplied with you know new information about what was going on in this new germany mm-hmm. um and i think he welded that into uh, a new and updated understanding of uh, how sort of Nazi Germany was different from Mm
0: -hmm.
1: previous incarnations of Mm -hmm. German Mm
0: Empire. I I just wanted to uh, break in and say that I've been doing some uh, reading about American impressions of uh, Germany and Germans at the end of the 19th century and before the war in the early 20th century, and they're very favorable, Uh, especially uh, what we might call the, the cultural or educational elite. There was even something called the German method or German system, and um, it had great fans in American higher education at the yeah. end of the 19th and early 20th centuries. Many people don't know this, but it was it was hotly debated, and, and the debate was basically between uh, people that that liked the German system, which included graduate school, and, mm-hmm. and people that did not, who were uh, who, who who were rather sort of stuck in the 19th century. The, the German system won out, by the way. And for those of you who have gone to an American university, you are now subject to the German system. Right.
1: <laughs> Not just to, you know, German-born professors,
0: but to an yeah. entire German system. Oh, no, absolutely. Yeah, no, yes, we have a German system here now. And, and then, of course, there were, uh, you know, a, 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 even now I think uh, it's funny to go into one of our classes. I, I did this recently here in Iowa, and I asked how many of my students, I, I asked just the question, how many of you are German just like that? Mm-hmm. Um, and and a, a good, over half of them opened their hand. Uh, or or yeah. raise their hands. And I think yeah. – what is it? It's like six – t- I, I don't know what the proportion is, but six in ten Americans or something claim German yeah. descent.
2: Yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: And I have German descent myself. I know this for a fact. Uh, my um, people came over in the early 19th century to Ohio, and and, and they had a very favorable attitude. And it's it, it, it funny. I, was, I, was a, uh, I interviewed a fellow who wrote a book about uh, uh, Jewish immigrants to New York. And mm-hmm. uh, it's clear the New Yorkers preferred the Germans to almost anybody else. <laughs> when yeah. people, they really wanted the Germans to come, and 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 the German Jews were fine too. It was the other people that they didn't particularly like. So it's interesting how this changed during um, World War One so very quickly. And, and
1: but but it seems then that World War One and the sort of the anti-German hysteria, it always struck me as an aberration to this larger story that you just began sketching. You know, I think that uh, in general there is a there is, as you say, a much more positive. Uh, attitude and there is always that reference to you know german immigration but yeah. if you look at the if you look at the numbers and then you look at the numbers in World War II or in the thirties and in the forties of um you know Americans um expressing you know empathy with the Germans or some kind of ethnic cultural affinity, i think that um those numbers go far beyond um just sort of german american immigrants um mm-hmm. You know what I mean. Yeah, no, uh, I think, in other words, yeah. but I think that there is a there is an ethnic cultural affinity that goes beyond this idea that you know my grandfather emigrated or came to this country or we are direct mm-hmm. descendants you know in some uh, in some form from mm-hmm. from Germany. I think that, that there is there is this um, study that um, analyzes um, the image of Germans in literature, but especially in textbook. Uh, in uh, in textbooks uh, around 1900, and mm-hmm. and that historian comes to a very good conclusion. She says that um, Americans basically highlighted um, features in the Germans: uh, ingenuity, cleanliness, efficiency, mm-hmm. um, that they really liked in themselves. You know, yeah. so they they oh, look right. at the Germans and they yeah. see something that right. they really like about yeah. themselves, right. or would like you know to see in in their own society. It's funny because
0: if you look at the uh, the British understanding of the Germans uh, yeah. at the end of the 19th and early 20th century, there's a kind of conflation, and one sees this particularly with uh, Churchill, who, by the way, was not open to new ideas. <laughs> yeah. um, he, uh, he saw all Germans as Prussians, and I don't yeah. think most Americans would even know what a Prussian was in 1920 or 1920.: yeah. yeah, but he, yeah. he has, it's the Prussians that were the problem, and they were militaristic, you see, that, right. that was the deal. Yeah. And, and he, uh, he grew up on that, that was sort of his mother's milk, and he never forgot it. Yeah, always yeah. conflated Germans and Prussians. And I don't think Americans had any understanding of what Prussia was.
1: Well, I think to a certain extent they did, uh, Marshall, at least sort of in, in elite circles, like people who would be reading, you know, the the Journal of the Nation or so on. I, I think that Prussia moves a little bit to the center of American sort of political elite awareness um, after the civil war in this country mm-hmm. um, because people draw parallels between German unification of which we are now so critical, right? It's, mm-hmm. uh, it's under Bismarck, uh, and after three wars, you know, kicking out the Austrians, you know, kicking out the, uh, the Danish and, uh, and, you know, defeating the French. Um, so today I think this congeals for us into this, you know, inherently militaristic, you know, empire that's about to emerge. But if you look at the, at the literature at the time and sort of, you know, highbrow magazines, there is a real appreciation of Prussia. And again, the sense that they were similar to what we were doing here, especially the North, right? That would be the identification. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a, it's a unification, you know, of, uh, of a modern, progressive, forward looking, um, central state. Yeah, I didn't, yeah.
0: I didn't, I didn't know that. That's fascinating. Mm-hmm. I just, yeah, I've read mostly about the impact of this Prussian image on the, uh, on the English understanding of Germany, yeah. and, it, and it was very considerable in the conservative uh, sort of conservative side of, of British politics. But let's let's go on to talk about um, some of uh, FDR's um, correspondence in Germany, uh, some of the people that wrote him uh, about Germany after 33, uh, um, and and the thing I came away from your book uh, understanding is that uh, many of them got it quite right that they were uh, they were really yeah. they they were they were writer than than many of us are. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean that was one of the that was one of the big re- rewards of doing this research, you know, that I I you know it was really a uh a, a, an avenue for me to go back to looking at the third Reich. Uh and I was uh, you know very favorably surprised that um really the the depth and the breadth of the uh, the sophistication in many ways, the accuracy and the sophistication of the contemporary understanding I think much of that is based um, on really excellent reporting by by foreign correspondents you know there is a, a, a historian who writes on intelligence in World War Two and he says about the American case, you know, we didn't really have that much intelligence and we didn't really have intelligence agencies yet at that time. But the foreign correspondents were really quite amazing. You know, they had uh they had contacts in uh uh in uh you know in, in high circles but they only they also at the same time really, you know, um they lived among the Germans, so, you know, they were um very open to um, you know, to how the, the, sort of the variety of, of German responses to their, to their new leadership, you know, the level of support, uh, and difference and so on. So I think the, the American foreign correspondents in Germany later in, in, in Central Europe really deserve, uh, deserve a lot of credit. And, you know, some of them wrote directly to Roosevelt. Roosevelt, moreover, had, um, He had um, friends who were um, businessmen and still had business interests in uh, uh, in Nazi Germany, and would go back and then also again talk to you know people from all walks of life uh, uh, in Germany. So he got very, uh, very, and he was very eager and interested in that, and invited that, and encouraged people to you know. He thanked them for having written this five-page, you know, single-spaced report mm-hmm. on, you know, Germany in thirty-six, And then, please, you know, please, please write again. So he, um, yeah, he had access to um, a wide range of uh, assessments of what was going on uh, in Nazi Germany. He was, I would stress his open-mindedness because it's striking when you go through his papers that he did not only encourage people to write to him who were um reporting to him what he sort of you know uh was thinking about Nazi Germany but he also encouraged uh Joseph Kennedy you know to keep the flow of information going and 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 Kennedy who was an appeaser did not really you know represent uh, a mm-hmm. political assessment that that, um, that Roosevelt shared but um he wanted to sort of have the entire panorama yeah.
0: mm-hmm. well tell us about some of these people one of them that i was uh, interested in was i think his name's william dodd is that right william yeah that that's the ambassador name? yeah, yeah. 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 And he i've actually uh, in another weird connection i've read some <laughs> of his letters from germany to to um to to FDR, and they are five-page, single-spaced. Yeah, um, really, very beautifully written, detailed analysis that that get you know his Dodd's own uh, understanding evolves, but he he's pretty much as we would say on the money about the Nazis.
1: Yeah, um, that's right. I I think also it's um, I'm always um, you know reminded what I, I think that for I think that both for the journalists and for the ambassador and for other people Americans working in the in the German embassy in the American embassy in Berlin um, i think that they sensed from the beginning from 1933 on that this might turn into quite an existential question but it was absolutely necessary to uh to get the story right mm-hmm. you know i mean this is why this is why i chose uh this title for the book which um come sort of straight out of the out of the sources there was really that imperative to know your enemy mm-hmm. you know even though in 33 it was only clear to a minority that this you know that uh, uh, that this was going to be an enemy in a in a formal sense mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. um but um God, but especially someone who worked under him Mrs Smith uh mm-hmm. and then again you know journalists would write as early as 33 or 34 Uh, Nazism means war, you know. There is this fascinating story of the, of the, uh, publication of, of Hitler's Mein Kampf, you know, his first book, Mm uh, in this country. Um, and it's available in, uh, in 33. And, um, again, the president writes in a, in a handwritten note to Houghton Mifflin, which is the company that, that first publishes, uh, an, an English translation of, of Mein Kampf. So the president, in a handwritten note to Helten Missman, says, "Yeah, thank you for sending this copy to me, um, but I would like to point out to you that this is a rather expurgated version, mm-hmm. yeah. and um, the the German original would make for quite a different story." Mm-hmm. And he highlights in particular two things. One is uh, the sort the really intense commitment to a murderous anti-Semitism. antisemitism. Mm-hmm. And the other one is the, the the foreign policy aims, which are, you know, much more the war aims later of the, Mm -hmm. of the Germans, which are much more excessive. And, um, so some people again point to that and say, you see, he, you know, he, Roosevelt went to school in Germany and, and he knew German and, you know, I don't think that he knew German (laughs) and I don't think that, you know, he had, he had read the, you know, Mein Kampf in the original. But again, his connections to people who did know, uh, German and uh, and uh, and who had read Mein Kampf. So there is quite a campaign headed by some of these foreign correspondents to get um, to get a more complete and accurate mm-hmm. translation of Mein Kampf out, which eventually happens later in the in the 1930s.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I can tell you that and this is probably typical of uh, people of my background and generation. My introduction to uh german history in general and then the third reich was um reading rise and fall of the third reich by william and i don't have any idea how to pronounce his last name Schirer, 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 Tyra,
1: Schirer, I would say, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: can you talk a little bit about him because that book was uh i think incredibly influential i, I yeah. remember it even to this day it was one of the only yeah. books my parents had in the house i don't know why right.
1: <laughs> yeah no but that, I, I read that's... it yeah yeah. That sounds right to me. I mean, to this day, you know, students come to me and that's that's the book that they have read, you know, and, and I'm happy to work with that because he is uh he is um you know part of that group of, you know, uh very conscientious and uh and well informed uh well informed journalists. Um, what I noticed looking uh at his at his diary, which you know is now also published uh or which for a long time has been published now in uh in two parts
0: is this called the is this, Night- is this the nightmare years or is it what is no it called?
1: that's a memoir oh, i think that okay. his diaries from the time you know which would have like oh, okay. entries of november 38 and so on okay. um was you know sort of his his thirties and then his wartime uh uh, diary, but it comes uh, it comes out during the war. Anyways, <clears throat> his diary shows a much greater ambivalence about the Germans than his post-war writing. You know, mm-hmm. so we, in some ways we have this phenomenon that after after the war, um, you know, at least for some people, um, the enemy image does congeal, right? And uh, and you know, Shira would look back and think, well, this you know, this was sort of Inevitable, and, uh, and you know there is an in- inherently aggressive, militaristic streak. We find him much more um, ambivalent about the Germans in the 30s when he lives among them. His wife is um, is Austrian, an Austrian artist, and he will say things like, uh, you know, in- taken individually, the Germans are just like you and me. They're you know they're a decent human beings, but something seems to happen to them you know when they get into this collective and then uh the the brainwashing seems to work on them and then they don't have any sort of inner political cultural resistance against this authoritarianism and then you know racism and excessive nationalism um so it's easy for the nazis to to manipulate and to brainwash them and to melt them to weld them into in into an instrument of their of their aggressive
2: mm-hmm. uh
1: policy. I would say that in general, uh what I found remarkable is that um, you know, I'm I'm highlighting in the book four different journalists, but you know, altogether, I mean, I could have written about twenty or thirty of them mm-hmm. and they are all quite remarkable. But I chose those four because um I think they were the most widely read at the time. You know, they had, you know, weekly columns and uh, they were the most important so foreign cars foreign cars Respondents, Shira, for example, spoke regularly on the radio, so pe- many people would have heard his his podcast. They come up with, in the end, really conflicting interpretations um, of Nazi Germany. You know, conflicting interpretations of you know what what that country is about and and what it means. If it means inevitably war, how central the racism, you know, the anti-Semitism is, and then. Um, I think most importantly, they come up with conflicting interpretations about um, really the status of the German people, you mm-hmm. know, the level of popular support for different aspects of Nazi policy, you know uh, domestic as well as then increasingly uh, foreign policy, war, you know um. And I think that that means for Americans back home that they can sort of you know pick and choose mm-hmm. um and 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 take you know from this 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 uh larger menu this variety of uh of interpretation those that make those that make sense to them. I think that's a a very important contributing factor where there is no coherent enemy image you know uh mm-hmm as we had for the Germans in World War I or as we have for the Japanese in uh, uh, in World War II. Because
0: mm-hmm. really, I, the way I understood the debate to be framed, on the one side people said that um, Nazism was uh, a sort of, uh, I think if you put it in the book, it's either a disease or it's led by gangsters. And then there were people like uh, Shirer, I think, who said that it had deeper German roots that, in fact, the Germans were, right. r- really did support uh, uh, Hitler um, and, and were really behind him, as, as Hitler himself said. I
2: think. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: Exactly. I, and yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: And so it really was difficult to tell uh, which was the case.
1: Well, you know, when I again, when I sort of look at the uh, at the sources uh, in detail, I find uh, I find that they sort of anticipate and and, and foreshadow. Uh, Many of the more carefully studied conclusions to which historians came mm-hmm. in the you know in the 60 years you know 70 years since, and I find that aspect in particular quite fascinating, you know, and I can only explain it with this that that people felt a great uh, urgency, you know, to uh, to get the story right. That that was, I think, one attraction of the of the disease of the medical, you know, mm-hmm. uh, metaphor. You know, it was sort of this um the case history, you know, first the case history of the you know, of German history had to be uh of the German patient had to be had to be laid out and explained and then um from that you had to come to the right conclusion, which was, you know, the diagnosis of what was wrong with these people. You know, was it was it the Versailles treaty which had been, you know, maybe too harsh, you know, uh, or was it uh uh was, were there deeper roots? In, uh, uh in German political culture and uh, and history mm-hmm. and then from the diagnosis the cure you know like what you know so I mean how can we help these people and help ourselves and prevent World War three uh you know what foundations do we need to lay uh in order to facilitate pacification and uh, liberalization and democratization um after the war so since you brought up Shira, I mean what what he I think comes to represent in the end is what um at the time during World War II was called uh the fancybutist position. Mm-hmm. You know, Lloyd Ramsitad was a British uh politician who wrote a couple of books on uh on Germany that were very useful for wartime anti-German propaganda, like you know, one was called the Black Record namely the black record really of the of the German people.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And um I think the Vinciditas position which was much maligned in this country in the United States at the time. It was compared to um that's really sort of a, a racist conception of the Germans. That much that's not much better um than how the the Nazis think about the Jews. Mm-hmm. Um, which was really a horrible comparison to make, you know but um, but people you know, this comes up all the time. Um, but the vinciist position I argue in my book, um, even though it was in part a wartime polemic, in its descriptive and analytical parts, gets the story of the third Reich uh, much cl- much better, much more accurate. Mm-hmm. Than than those Americans who try to defend, you know, German either the German people or you know German culture. So the the core aspects of this um, of this Vincidus position uh, is to argue that there actually is a lot of support uh, among the German people for different aspects of Nazi policy. Mm-hmm. You know, not every German was ready to murder. A Jew personally, but you know, there was just enough support for anti Semitic policy or indifference or acquiescence or, you know, Germans actually benefiting from that from that policy.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh or Germans being just sort of uh nationalistic enough, you know, not to want to criticize this government that had so successfully revised, you know, the, the Versailles treaty.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I think the level of um of support is what they what they get right. Um, and thereby really overriding um, a widespread phenomenon of in this country of distinguishing between the German people and the Nazi gangsters and the Nazi government, mm-hmm. so it's d- drawing a, short, a sharp contrast and dichotomy uh, between those uh, between those two. Mm-hmm. And then there was also in this country during the war a discourse about the other Germany. You know that there was this other Germany which is. Uh, you know, um, mm-hmm. cultured and uh, and peaceful, and you know, look at the immigrants and refugees in this country and so on. And again, the Völkisch says, yeah, there is this other Germany, but we don't think that they are sort of the liberal Germany, the good Germany, mm-hmm. but we don't think that they are very effective.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, they had, um, you know, they had the entire period of the Weimar Republic, and uh, they were not, they were not able to. To stay the course, or to defend democracy, or you know, liberalism in that uh, uh, in that country. Mm-hmm. So the different elements of this much more critical, um position in the end amount to what in the in the internationalized historiography on uh, on Germany becomes the the special path paradigm. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea that German history took um, a special path. Um, especially after after 1871, you know, after after unification, um, and that really draws on a cherished German self-image from around 1900, where German elites promote that idea and self-consciously say, yeah, we we you know, German civilization took uh, a different path than you know than Western civilization, than the French, the British, and uh, and the americans so the the origins of that is actually a proud understanding of that of that special path and i think during the during the war the 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 Vincitists, um remodeled that into an indictment of mm-hmm. german history and german culture
0: mm-hmm. well let me ask you this what did um if we can tell you talk about a little bit in the book what what, what did a, a sort of everyday Americans ones always I'm skeptical of any general statement about the common man or the man on the street. Let's let's try it anyway. Uh, What did did, uh, uh, the man on the street or the woman on the street in the United States think about Nazi Germany uh, immediately before and at the beginning of the war, let's say? And and, uh, what did the uh, Roosevelt administration do to um, mobilize uh, what we might call American antipathy uh, toward the Nazis in order to fight the war?
1: Yeah. So I think that there are two there are two maybe countervailing phenomena there for this entire period between thirty three and sort of through the great debate, you know, thirty-nine, forty, forty one, all the way up to up to Pearl Harbor. Um and that is on the one hand what we already talked about, the you know, the uh the very detailed and accurate reporting. Uh, which also feeds uh you know an anti nazi movement uh, in in this country and sort of a, uh, an awareness of what's of what's going on um, the 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 counterpart to that is uh, a great skepticism and um, and and disbelief of the accuracy of uh, of of that reporting. Um, and I think that is said by um, by different by different uh, sources. I mean there is this sort of lingering empathy um with the Germans. Um, there is a kind of hangover from World War One, from the anti German hysteria. There is the backlash, I think, against World War One in so many ways. The atrocity propaganda, uh, you know, in the beginning of, of World War One, uh the sort of overheated domestic anti German propaganda in this country. But there's also a backlash against Wilsonianism and I think that becomes quite important uh, during the 30s and sort of merges with the fact that again there is a democratic president in the White House and again it seems like he's about to lead the country into war just as Wilson had done so there's a backlash I think against Wilsonianism, uh, sort of military um liberal interventionism, if that makes sense, you know, to make the world safe for democracy mm-hmm. Um, so I think Americans debate rather critically, well, I mean, even if horrible things are going on in Nazi Germany what's the relevance of that to us? Mm-hmm. Why do we have to fight again? We tried this before, and it didn't work out you know so let's let's not let's not do that again. The public opinion polls, I think more specifically show that there is always pretty much. Um, a majority of Americans who are not, who are just not ready to, to hate or fear the Germans. Mm -hmm. And I think the underlying reason for that is, um, this understanding that we talked about at the, at the beginning of the hour. The Germans are like us, you know. So maybe, maybe they got captured temporarily by the Nazis, you know, imagined as a gangster government Mm -hmm. that sort of apparently descended on Germany from, Outer space, you know, since they were Martians, they had landed there, and now, um, now the Germans maybe became even the first victims of Nazi aggression. You know, some people put the story together, put the story together that way, um, so that the war propagandists become um, quite despairing, uh, even in the middle of the war. Uh, and say, you know, we really ought to do something to uh, instill a little bit more fear and hatred uh, uh, in our people, you know, of of the German people. Yeah. But the Office of War Information, which is our propaganda agency, you know, at the time, uh, chooses, uh, I think, a deliberate policy of restraint. I mean, even, perhaps even at a higher level, Roosevelt, you know, opts for sort of, um deliberately restrained uh propaganda policy. And then the Office of War Information um I think you could say studies too closely these public opinion polls even during the war that show this sort of ethnic identification with the German people and then constructs uh, a wartime image of the Germans that builds on that
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and accommodates um I think it accommodates two things this um the sort of ethnic empathy ethnic cultural solidarity with uh, with the germans um but also in more sort of political ideological terms, i think that American liberalism implies uh, a distinction between people and government and I think you see that not only in the in the german case around in world war two but you 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 find that throughout uh america's war mobilizations or understanding of other people you know a distinction between government and people and government uh and uh you know militaristic leaders they might be aggressive but really what um the people are usually understood to be inherently peaceful uh and you know all wanting the same thing which is Freedom and democracy. Mm-hmm. And I, I you know, one of my favorite foreign correspondents at the time is uh is Dorothy Thompson mm-hmm. and she's such a multifaceted yes, very, uh, inter- very know, interesting person. Very interesting. And she's politically a conservative and she writes, you know, at the time, uh that is a big liberal fallacy. You know, people yes. do not always want um uh freedom and certainly not always democracy, because democracy is actually sort of Difficult populism is much easier, yeah. uh, and her and and I think this conclusion to which she comes uh, is is it's not so much um, because she is a conservative, but because she has lived among the Germans in the twenties, she has seen the collapse of the Weimar Republic, and um, you know she's only kicked out um, you know in the in the in the early 1930s, and she sees how that how that goes. Democracy was sort of you know too difficult an enterprise, you know and. Uh, Following the populist appeal of the Nazis was was much easier and uh, and more attractive to many Germans.
0: It's funny I have to interrupt because one of my um, favorite lines in all um, movies I think encapsulates that American feeling that there's a difference between the government and the people, and it's in I think it's in Full Metal Jacket, the Stanley uh-huh. Kubrick movie, in which yeah. uh, one of the characters says that uh, inside every Vietnamese there's an American struggling to get out. Yeah, <laughs> that's wonderful. That's yeah. exactly. That really yeah. exactly what Americans think, that really, yeah, yeah that, that, that these governments are all imposed and that people would live just like us if they could. Um, yeah. And, and I should say, that this is a per, absolutely pervasive notion, and, and it has driven American foreign policy, I think, to some extent for a long time, and it is just a mistake. I, I don't know what yeah. to say, it's just a mistake. And it's funny because Americans think, I, I have this debate with my students a lot about whether Democratic people make democratic governments or democratic governments make democratic people and I have to say that the evidence is that Democratic people make democratic governments but my yeah. my students just won't believe this they, they don't they don't think this is really true so if we give them uh, you know a bicameral legislature and a strong president then well pretty soon they're going to be saluting the flag and everybody is uh, going to be voting um, you know for some Republican form of government but it just really isn't it just really isn't so another thing I wanted to say and I really liked in the book and I, I always appreciate when books point out the enormous gaps in American historical m- memory um, that, that, that there was considerable opposition to entering World War I. Americans have forgotten this. There was yeah. considerable opposition to entering World War II. Americans have completely forgotten this. In fact, I think you quote a poll uh, which shows that the majority of Americans in the 1930s thought that entering World War I was a mistake. Right. It was, right. Our, it was our first Vietnam. <laughs> well, yeah, you know? yeah. Yeah. It was yeah. Our first Vietnam. You know. I mean, it was. Yeah. But people don't remember this at all because yeah. in, in the yeah. American mind, we're always on this moral crusade, and we go in it with, you know, one mind and one heart, and we're going to strike the foe. And but in fact, uh, you know, even the New Deal. I interviewed somebody about the New Deal. You know, and there was absolutely uh, there was absolutely vitriolic debate about the New Deal. Yeah. Even while it was going on, people were yeah. extraordinarily angry about it. We look back on yeah. yeah. it in this kind of glowing light, like uh, you know oh, it was wonderful and we all got together in the WPA and they paid people to make music and poetry. But yeah. It wasn't like
1: that at all. Yeah, no, I mean, the, I think the hatred and suspicion of that man in the White House. Yeah, yeah. that mm-hmm. exactly mm-hmm. right.
0: And I, and I think that your book does a really good job of, of, of pointing out how really it was that things then are like things now. And, yeah. so, and people, yeah. people will say, for example, I'm sorry to go off on this tangent, but you know mm. that, that Bush somehow drug us into the second Iraq war well I, yeah. I was alive during the time, and I remember a lot of debate and a congressional uh and a c- congressional vote and lots of people on both sides of the aisle supporting it and you know yeah. it wasn't just George Bush; it was a lot of us supporting yeah. it and there was debate about it it didn't nobody got bamboozled. we decided to yeah. do this thing after right. you know after basically trying to rip each other's throats out and it was just like that before World one War two I, <laughs> I think um so in that way, I think the book does a really, a really nice job of, of showing these uh, lacunae in American historical uh, memory, um, ever such. Uh, so let's let's talk a little bit about um, the, the reception. A lot have been written about this, as you said, the reception of the Holocaust by by uh, the American cultural elite and Americans in general. And um, there's a kind of a well-known book, Beyond Belief, about yeah. This. So why was it beyond belief when they got the reports?
1: Well. Again, I think that there are so many, you know, sources that come to so many factors that come together here. Um I think that I, I think that um you know, after forty five, um and not immediately, but you know, after a while we talk about the Holocaust and it's like a phenomenon in our mind. Whereas at the time it was single reports. Mm-hmm about, you know, this camp and that transportation and those events. I mean, the the genocide starts with, with mass shootings, mm-hmm. which could easily have been misunderstood as just, you know, part of uh, the brutality of war, mm-hmm. right? You know, why single that one out, you know? that That's what happens during war, you know, war crimes. So I think so many things come together. I mean, one thing just sort of to get that out of the way, this is um, – of in terms of American history, this is the high tide of uh, of anti-Jewish sentiment in this country. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think that makes um, that that shapes both the, the Roosevelt administration and then more specifically the the Office of War Information uh, strategy. There is a concern over a homegrown societal anti-Semitism, mm-hmm. and um, so they opt against using really the centrality of racism, mm-hmm. uh, in Nazi ideology, you know, in theory and in practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the OWI opts against, you know, using, using that. So the, um, the story of, you know, the persecution of the Jews and then the murder of the Jews, by the Germans gets um, gets misrepresented um as part of two two different stories one is um um sort of the Nazi attack on religion mm-hmm. you know there's a very revealing public opinion poll in november 38 right after the the pogrom you know the Kristallnacht, um where something like 94% of americans which is like an extremely high number right show awareness of that event, of the pogrom, and condemn it, you know, express their outrage. Mm -hmm. And in the same poll, 96% of Americans condemn Nazi anti-Catholic policy, Mm -hmm. you know, so then, Jewish persecution is really misunderstood as an attack by the Nazis, not the Germans. The Nazis on religion, which again also affects the Germans, right, who are churchgoers, and thereby they also become the first victim of their, uh, of their own government. And then during the war, the Office of War Information has uh, a deliberate policy against the use of atrocity stories. Um, that's mm-hmm. you know sort of but World War One reverberates there, um, and there are all these. Um, You know, important, but very, for us, very painful to read quotes from officials where they'll say, uh, you know, we won't, we won't use uh, atrocity stories against, uh, against the Jews because that will uh, obscure the larger picture of Nazi brutality in occupied Mm
2: -hmm. uh,
1: countries. You know, so in part, it's a, it's a deliberate decision, you know, not to, um, uh you know not to use this information and it's um it's it's very tragic and painful for us to look at this because you know the Office of War Information will say, uh, okay, so our our goal is to characterize the nature of the enemy. You know, the nature of the enemy has to be understood and, you know, um and and told to the uh to the American people and you think, yep. And what would really help Americans or anyone else to understand the nature of the enemy would be, would be this murderous anti-Semitism and how important that was, you know, for Nazi ideology and, and, and policy and, you know, the realization of their, of their racial dystopia that they argue against it. And then I think for just, you know, for many Americans, um, um, you know, Ian Kirscher says the, the, the road to Auschwitz is, uh, uh, is built on hatred but paved with indifference. I think also after 45, um, I mean, American foreign policy really changes uh, in nature. We become, you know, the leader of the free world. There is humanitarian intervention and so on. That was not really part of the menu mm-hmm. uh, in World War II and prior to World War II. Mm-hmm.
2: Um,
1: I mean, the you know, the government had to fight off that label that, you know, the New Deal was a Jew deal. Mm-hmm. and um, And there were, you know, there was a substantial, substantial, minority, um, thirty, forty percent uh according to the you know, to the polls at the time, that was susceptible to that propaganda that, you know, those was susceptible to to Jews as warmongers, you know, we're going to fight this Jew, this war on behalf of the of the Jews. And then within the government um circle, um you know, again there are sort of vignettes that are that are very that are very revealing. Jan um, Karski, who was um, um, he was sort of one of the messengers, of, you know, uh, of the of the genocide. He was a he was a Pole, whom the Polish exile government uh, sent to the British government, and then and then later to the U.S. Uh, to report on what was going on in uh, in Poland and to report on the strength of the Polish underground. But um, he had actually been in a camp, and he had seen you know mm-hmm. some of some of the some of the work. So he talks to people in london and uh, and then in Washington. and how Roosevelt and others react to him is uh, is very revealing. You know mm-hmm. he has an interview with with uh, with Felix frankfurter and uh, and Frankfurter responds by saying, i just I just can't believe this. I can't believe this."
2: Mm-hmm.
1: and uh, the Polish ambassador is is present at this interview. And he says, Felix, you can't, you can't tell this man that he is lying. (laughs) You know, the, the, the authority of my government is behind him and he was there. He has seen it with his own eyes. And Frankfurt just says, I'm not saying that he is, he, Karski, is lying. I'm just saying I can't, I can't believe this. Mm -hmm. Then there is, um, another official who I think is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, but also works either for the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, or the Office of War Information. And he looks at, like many others, you know, he looks at the reports and he begins to understand the picture, you know. Um, there is information published in the New York Times that, you know, a, a million Jews have been murdered, uh, in Europe, mm-hmm. uh, in 1942, you know, and that there are plans to, to, to exterminate the rest of the European Jewry. And this man says, it's hard to say what to do about this. And I think we sort of have to take that seriously. Mm-hmm. It's hard to say what to do about this mm-hmm. and then you know Roosevelt and others just opt for, okay, we have to win this war militarily. That's mm-hmm. what we can do about this. Mm-hmm. Um, a poll in um I think this was also thirty eight shows that you know two thirds of uh, of the American people were opposed to raising the quota you know mm-hmm. keep them out was mm-hmm. um
0: so, yeah, no. I, mean, but, I was going to say, I think you're exactly right about this. I think that the degree of, it, I think it's very hard for modern Americans to understand understand the degree of anti-Semitism uh, that that was uh, that was prevalent in the American mind in the 1930s, 40s, and even 50s. That that it just we, we don't we don't have it anymore, and it's largely I think a yeah. result of the reception of the Holocaust. And I think there's yeah. probably a really interesting book to be written if it hasn't already been written about the creation of the idea of the Holocaust, because if you read. Uh, histories of the war prior to the, the sort of, I would even say, before Davidovitz and before the 1960s, yeah. that really the centrality of the Holocaust is, is never mentioned. It's, it's almost yeah. as if it's not even known. Yeah. Um, and, and, and now it's simply become a trope. I mean, whenever you talk about the Nazi regime, you have to talk about the Holocaust. But prior to the 1960s, exactly. that just wasn't yeah. true at yeah. all. And I think that it's it's easy to condemn these people uh, for, yeah. for, for choosing to put the, the – these military aims first, but on the other hand, I, I really how the United States, how people, you know, in, in my native Kansas would have responded to going to, uh, you know, how it would have been spun. We're going to go and defeat the Germans for the Jews, and that yeah. just wouldn't have played very well. Right? <laughs> yeah, right. it just would not have worked. Um, yeah. And so it's it's easy to I think I think it's for me it's I, I understand what what they were they were doing. Let's um let's talk a little bit in the few minutes that are left about what uh what the um American government and the American people thought should be done with the Germans after it was clear that they were going to lose once they started to make plans. Um, there are a lot of um, myths about th- this as well. Um, most yeah. of them revolving around the uh, the idea that we were going to turn Germany into a giant garden. Right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, I never quite saw the problem with that. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, so, yeah, that's a very interesting story. I mean, on, on the one hand, I think it has to be emphasized that um, – the wartime planning proper um in this country begins not only with Pearl Harbor, but even before Pearl Harbor, you know? So um I think that uh the the wartime planning in general, but increasingly also for, for post war defeated Germany, uh was very thorough and uh and very proper. Um, but I devote uh, a good section of my book to the rehabilitation of the Secretary of the Treasury um, uh, Henry Morgenfel, who uh, for me, in many ways is a hero, just as much as he is you know a villain in much of the of the German hi- historiography. And uh, i say I say in my book that uh, I think this is almost tragic that you know the Nazi propaganda survives. In this vilification, uh, of, um of Morgensau as the author of his pastoralization, uh, plan for Germany, you know, the, for, for the longest time in the, in the post-war, you know, historiography. I think this is somewhat connected to what we were just talking about. <clears throat> Morgensau is the one cabinet member who, um, who takes in and accepts the information, the incoming information of the genocide. Um, And he sort of draws the right conclusion and he does something about it. Um so one way of discrediting Morgensau uh in the literature, both the German and the American literature to this day is to say, well, he really wasn't an expert on this question. <laughs> he should not have had any um any hand, you know, in uh in, you know, even writing a memoranda on uh on, on, on German, you know, post war treatment because the experts of the war and and, uh, and State Department and, you know, the advisory commission were were doing that. But Morgenthau, in fact was an expert. Mm-hmm. On the German question, because his department had dealt, you know, with some since 33. He was the one cabinet member that was really, uh, you know, uh, very much involved in, uh, in, uh, in rescue operations, um, to the extent, you know, to which they were successful and sort of pushing, pushing back on the, on the State Department that showed a very callous indifference, uh, uh, in that regard. And then, you know, he, he really did understand the Holocaust. So he was looking, for a plan and for devising a strategy of fundamentally restructuring and reforming uh Germany and i think out of that out of that impulse you know to prevent world war 3 by Fundamentally reorienting the Germans, not just you know as a as a state in terms of political institutions, but in terms of its political culture mm-hmm. and general orientation. I think that was sort of the motivation behind uh, this um, this partial deindustrialization scheme, because that's really what the Morgenthau Plan was. You know, mm-hmm. he he understood. I think because of his portfolio, because of you know the. Uh, the work that the Treasury Department did, he understood the the, the close connection between uh, between industry, business, and uh, and and the military effort in Germany. You
0: know. Mm-hmm. And what did Roosevelt think about uh, this plan?
1: Well, I mean, I think that um, I think in terms of a general understanding of um, Germany and what was going on in the Third Reich. Morgenthau and Roosevelt shared this Mensuditus position, you know, the idea that there actually was a considerable level of popular support in Germany for different aspects of of Nazi policy, and that there were deeper roots and antecedents to Nazism in German history and political culture. I think they they shared this, and so Roosevelt was quite open to the to the Morgenthau plan, and there were. Some sort of practical aspects that also appealed to him. Um, neither one of those two men looked forward to a long, uh, occupation by the U.S. Army, uh, in Germany. You know, they wanted to bring the American troops back home, uh, as quickly as possible. Uh, so the, uh, and in terms of allied, uh, you know, politics, uh, that also really seemed to work out well. Morgan's first plan seemed to work out well both for the British and for, uh, and for the
0: Soviets, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Let me let me ask you this: um, since we're almost out of time, I, I'm interested in your uh, in your opinion about it. Uh, it's not exactly dealt with in the book, but, but what did Germans today think about uh, the Americans' role in defeating the Nazis and in the post-war settlement? What is was the sort of general feeling? Just to turn the question around, we've talked a lot about yeah, what Americans think about Germans. Right. What do Germans think about Americans, especially in this particular uh episode?
1: I think that we go through various phases, you know? Like you could write um about uh various waves of, you know, looking at uh at World War 2 and American policy towards Germany during the during the, you know, First West German and now unified, you know, German, uh, period. So I don't think it's, it's very, really, it's very coherent. I think that there are, I think that there are many Germans, obviously, you know, well, not starting with my generation, I think even, even earlier than that, who did, uh, experience the, um, the German, the German defeat as a liberation. Mm-hmm. Um, but just, Recently, uh, in the in the 1990s, uh, there was the sort of a German rediscovery of a, of, a, of a cherished post-war self-image as victims. Mm-hmm. You know, when the when the Germans first emerge from their bubbles in uh, in '45, they they very much think of themselves as victims. Mm-hmm. You know, victims of the Nazi regime, victims of the Allied bombing. You know, victims of you know the betrayal by Hitler and. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, and so victims of the, you know, Soviets, uh, of course, in, in, in particular, um, the Soviet post-war treatment. But, um, I think that we saw a revival of that in the, in the 90s with this attention. A couple of books come out that focused on Allied bombings yeah, weapons, uh, of, yeah. of German cities, you know, that, and so that's where this is revived. Um, but I think that, um, you know, German history is, a... uh, it's a very, a very positive and, and, and good example for internationalization mm-hmm. uh, of history. I think that German history is one of the most internationalized historiographies, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that's a very positive development. And I think that's a very liberating development. And I think that's also how many Germans see it.
0: Yeah, you know? well, I'll just give my kind of two cents about this. I, <laughs> the 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 French, God love them never miss an opportunity to thank the Americans for saving them in World War One and World War II. And
2: mm-hmm. then they
0: never support the United States in anything. Yeah. The Germans never, ever thank us for saving them from the Nazis. But they support us most of the time in our mm-hmm. <laughs> So I don't know exactly how that breaks, but it's always struck me as extraordinarily um I- interesting, at least. I, I yeah. I've always kind of wondered about it. Well anyway, Michaela, I want to say thank you very much for being on the show. We've taken up a lot of your time today. Let me um close with our traditional final question, um, and that is uh, what are you working on now? What's your next project?
1: Well, um, I, I'm working on three different things, and my hope is that they somehow will coalesce, you know, and become coherent and become one project, so that I don't, you know, fizzle out on this. Um, a, a little while ago, I started working on a on a group of German uh, intellectuals who worked as political journalists during the Third Reich and then continue in that professional career uh, in West Germany after the war um so that's that's one project you know how sort of which parts of their political and personal identity and belief system you know did they have to suppress deny revise you know mm-hmm. uh these kind of things um what I'm actually writing right now is uh a little piece on on American nationalism and patriotism mm-hmm. and i'm I'm interested in in two aspects in uh in particular one is sort of um I want to recapture the variety of American patriotism. I think that because of recent events and the, and the wars that we're involved in, um, a kind of militant chauvinistic patriotism dominates the picture. But I mm-hmm. think that the range of expressions of love for this country is actually much wider, mm-hmm. both historically and, and even at the uh, at the present moment. But I also think that World War II and after 1945, um, something sort of a dramatic shift happens in American nationalism and that that has something to do with um, a kind of militarization in in, in our foreign policy Mm -hmm. and then thirdly I hope that the way I can bridge these different things is um, I'm interested um, uh, and fascinated by this question of lessons learned and lessons drawn from world war Two. i mean this obviously has roots in this you know in this book mm-hmm. um so i'm 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 looking at uh, at different european especially french and german uh intellectuals and then germans in general what lessons they draw you know from world war Two. And then what lessons are drawn in this country from World War II? Mm -hmm. And I think there are the more so foreign policy relevant ones, you know, the the Munich analogy and the anti-appeasement and, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, which maybe culminate all the way in the Bush doctrine of, Mm -hmm. you know, preemptive war and so Mm -hmm. on. Uh, And then there are very different lessons that are less operational in foreign policy terms, but that are also drawn by... By American, you know, intellectuals and, you know, the theologian Niebuhr, you know, Hannah Arendt, Absolutely. other people come to mind, um, who see even the Nazi German experience more as part of a, of a sort of more, they see the Nazi German experience as something, that it has something important to tell us about, um Western civilization and the, and the sort of fragility of, mm-hmm. uh, of Western democracy
0: and yeah, from your from your mouth to God's ears. This is I, I tell my students about the fragility of Western democracy all the time <laughs> and how weirdly unusual it is I mean, yeah. in the world historical perspective. I don't think they yeah. realize that. Well, I hope that those three projects come together. And if they don't, I hope you write three books and then you can be on the show three more times. At least yeah, three wonderful. More times. Yeah, that'd be great. Well, um, Michaela Hanska Moore, let let me uh, thank you for. Uh, being on the show today, the book is Know Your Enemy, American Debate on Nazism, 1933-1945. to 1945. It's a terrific book, and I urge everybody to go out and read it. Uh, Michaela, thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Marshall. All right. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye.
2: You've
0: been listening to an interview with Michaela Honica about her new book, Know Your Enemy, American Debate on Nazism, 1933-1945. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.